0: You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom, this is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Judy, uh, still in these parts, actually out of Queens, New York, uh, soon obviously, on his way to Yerushalayim in a couple of weeks. Uh, perhaps even when this episode drops, Shreel, uh it'll be dropping while you're already in Eretz Yisrael. And the period where I assume people are going to be listening to it now is a period that is known as El. And we've talked about Chuva and we've talked about uh, getting nervous, anxious, excited. But there's an interesting acronym, which many people are very familiar with, that El stands for the Aleph Lamed, Lamed stands for the words from Shirashir, Mani Dodi, Vidodi Lee. Um, that I am to my beloved, my beloved is to me. And although eventually I think, and again, we, we've talked about, is it possible to have a loving relationship with the deity? I would like to actually not talk about so much that possibility, but rather to talk about this sense of a loving relationship with anyone. We've talked about it many times, Sam, about the type of uh, wrongheadedness and Silly, immature understandings that people have that they're supposed to get from their spousal relationships. But I want to talk to you specifically about a romantic sense that I think we can't help but be affected by. Anila Dodi uh especially now as we're recording, it's what's known in Israel as uh, Israel Valentine's Day. It's going to be Tuba of uh, just in a couple of days from where we're recording. And it really seems to, in some ways, as much as we know how silly it is that one day should be a day to celebrate love, it seems to have gained a lot of prominence in Israel and, same, and Valentine's Day here in the U.S. And I'm wondering, do you lack the size Shmuel, the idea that, you know, okay, here's a day that, that we dedicate to romantic love, a day that we sort of bask in the warm glow of what love can be. Is it all a big up, Naranish, to just, you know, sell um, greeting cards? Or or is there something maybe special about sort of, you know, dedicating uh, time to thinking about how sublime and beautiful and wonderful you could
1: feel uh, with some significant other? So I would say on a practical level, many times um, we lose the forest for trees, And you get um, wound up in day-to-day grunge and you miss the main point of what's going on. That's true of any endeavor. So, I mean, dyadic relationships, especially if they're romantic and they're based on something other than practical arrangements, are not exempt from that. People have to remind each other that there's something going on. And it's not only true for a spousal relationship. It's with relationships, say, with your children. Or with um, parents, Um, most uh, people who are not in modern Western culture don't ever tell their parents they love them until the funeral. And most people don't tell their kids they love them because they're too busy yelling at them to put away the bike or clean something up or go to bed. And what's assumed to be a given Is not a given because people forget about it. So I think having rituals where you actually confirm or verbalize what's supposed to be um, blatant or obvious is a very good ritual. And of course, you mentioned the LO with relationship with God. That's true as well. The idea, let's say, that you can just be someone who has a relationship with God without the ritual also has a good danger of losing that relationship because you get too bound up with getting things done, not getting things done. Just saying that I have a relationship and I value that relationship, that's quite meaningful. I remember when I was a little kid, I used to daven at the Kloisenberger Rebbe and in the middle of davening, he would just say, like, oh, daddy, I love you. <laughs> in the middle of davening everywhere. And that seemed odd. But again, when you davened, Regularly, every day, most of the time, you don't even listen to what you're saying, and what you're saying really has to do with things you want or things you want to say, rather than confirming, "Hey, we have a relationship here." Mm-hmm. So, I think ritualized reminders—I mean, besides being great business for Hallmark—it's—it's it's quite important. It's quite important to be there now if you're questioning the very uh, notion of romantic relationships? That's a much more basic question in terms of, let's say, uh, Marxist theory or in general economic theory of the anthropology of the family. Relationships were only founded essentially as practical arrangements to get the most out of resources with the minimum of danger. So in other words, when couples got together, it was for practical reasons to sire children who will take care of the farm or perhaps will take care of them in their old age. The idea of romanticism from, let's say, the Marxist perspective is just a subterfuge or it's perhaps something post hoc they came up with. That's a pretty good um, way of looking at things, which renders this whole thing moot. You know what's interesting, though, Sam, is that in what's happened in the culture, especially in the United States, I don't
0: know if that's the case in Eretz Roll. But what I, I get the, the sense is, is that you can just find your date, meaning not that Valentine's Day or tuba of is the time to find your significant other or to love your significant other. It's also a time that this girl or man that you have the hots for or that you have some sort of crush on, you can somehow a- allow yourself to throw away your inhibition a little bit and to express your feelings for that person and maybe get a date with them and maybe and and, and somehow she's expected or he's expected also to drop their guard it's almost like purim in a way like okay on Valentine's Day or on Tubov, you could actually go over to a woman that you wouldn't go over to normally and say, you know, I've been admiring you for a long time and I'd like to be able to do this. And it isn't necessarily to build a lasting relationship with, although I guess that you know is what's behind it. But I think what happens is it's like a day of romance, which doesn't necessarily lead to the Marxist Recipe for this will now allow the family to continue and landowning and passing on to children. It's basically a way to like a sybaritic experience.
1: I mean, what you're really saying is that this is a day where we actually focus on the more, uh, shall we say, uh, meaningful aspects of relationships or the more human aspects of relationships, which means that whereas regularly, on the day-to-day interaction, you don't go over to someone and start exploring relationship issues, quote-unquote, that are bereft of all the practical trappings, you can do that. Sure. In other words, there's a heightened sensitivity to what we call real relationships. So it's true. Um, That would be a day. It's, It's the equivalent of where after you had to have a couple of shots of alcohol, it's more acceptable to approach someone as for a possible date where you wouldn't otherwise. Like I, like I would
0: love to have on our program a sociologist of modern Israel that would wonder how this somewhat obscure date, which has the significance in the Gemara, uh, and the Gemara really uh, struggles to discover what it is that makes Tuba of this great yomtiv, and somehow that latched the, the Israeli secular consciousness latched on to that date in history and said, and as if we need it in his modern Israeli society, and it becomes promoted. So it's not it's it's not just the West, right? Obviously, it would be unseemly for a Jewish state to have celebrate Valentine's Day, but it sounds like, hey, this is a good thing. the 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 secular society embraces it. I'm wondering what it's tapping into. Uh, You think it's tapping into a need that every society perhaps should affirm? You know, I, I'm wondering if if it's really sort of, and again, I'm looking at it, I think, in a little more critical eye, that it's sort of a way to, you know, to get these one-night stands that I wouldn't have been able to get otherwise.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's used that way. I, I just, I'm not quite sure if this links into this, but I'm taken by a um, YouTube that I saw about a week ago. There is a Hasidic singer, he's a... Um, son of one of the most fanatical, Rebs, if you know the told Aaron is in, in Jerusalem, they are quite fanatic. They're among the uh, opponents of the state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so they have one son who basically became a Kalbach style um, a guitarist doing popular songs. And he came out with a song saying, I love a girl. I would like to be able to love a girl, which seemed outrageous, but the amount of hits he got, not not from the irreligious community, but from the religious community, is astounding. And part of his message is, uh, I'm not saying that we should violate any precepts or even any of the rituals in the Hasidic community, but we have to realize that you're looking for somebody who you would like to love. And then he spins off to ideas of saying, you should tell your kids you love them and don't ever kick a kid out of a house. And he, I mean, he's shared on the YouTube responses. I'm sorry, on the TV show, responses that he's gotten from Hasidic people who are traditional, who are no way uh, renegades who say that this has changed their life for the first time. They've told their kids, they love them. And who knows how many years. So again, there is a linkage here in that we really lose sight of that aspect. And again, for some, it's obvious. For some, you don't even think of it. I I can tell you that I had a a nice personal anecdote. I grew up in the Hasidic uh, household. And I had, um, when I was getting my doctorate, I got married just about that time. And I showed some wedding pictures to my chair of um, my dissertation in graduate school. And I show him a picture. I say, here's me with my father. And we're shaking hands at the wedding. He, my father's congratulating me. And he says, Sam, that's it? You ever hug your father? You ever kiss your father? I say, no. Do you love your father? Sure you do. Sure I do. And it was just, it hit me because I was like literally standing in two worlds and saying, what the heck? How could I not do this? I made sure. Next time I flew to New York, I hugged my father. Never done that. So again, to me, I'm not sure whether I thought of it that it's obvious or I didn't think of it. They don't even allow that. And having, let's say, even in that society, if it's not part of the norm during the year, if we would have two days of hug your father, that will be very significant. There are two days where you have to tell your kids you love them. It might change a lot. Sam, I'm, I'm going to push back a
0: little bit here because... I mean, not not the implication that I was sort of raising before, that I saw it as just a sideretic exercise. I also think that you know the word love and I love you is so overused. And I think we talked about it in this program. And, you know, I hear it from my students, you know, when I was teaching in high school and I hear about, I remember I was given the uh, toughest assignment. I mean, this was a weird thing that uh, rookie teachers, they threw them into the lion's den to get the toughest kids, the kids that even the expert teachers gave up on. This was was my, um, you know, I, I entered teaching high school on a regular day-to-day basis, somewhat of a, a later time in life, I guess, in my late 30s, because I'd spent, you know, uh, many years, 15 straight years in Colo, And I remember I was trying to teach them about in relationship to God and ourselves and connecting it to perhaps the idea of love, one of the, the second blessing of our shachrist avening before the Shema, which is all about the love, the great love God has for us. So I remember trying to explicate to them what this idea of love is and how God, a, a supreme being, could love us. How could this being who has everything, how can he show that love and how this the words of that bracha, the words of that blessing, somehow teases out not only the love between us and God, but maybe what love can be. Well, anyway, that was my idea. Now, one when I tried throwing the icebreaker out, saying, "Okay, tell me what you guys love. What do you love? What do you love?" Now, this was in the it was actually in the late nineties, and I remember one of the students jumps up and says, "I love South Park. I love South Park. That's what I love." Which is, a, of course, a very popular. Television cartoon program that 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 has been lauded as being so brilliant and funny and risque and off-color, et cetera, et cetera. And I was thinking, that's what he loves, and he said it with such fervor. And I was thinking, once that happened, about what the the artifice of saying what you love. What you love is what meaning what you what you make me feel good. I love you. What does that mean I love you? I love taking that time and laughing over South Park and the humor that it has. And I love the way it makes me feel. I, I don't love the other thing. I love myself, and this is one of the things that makes me feel good. So if you have a day that's dedicated to telling people you love them, meaning you turn me on, you I love the way you make me feel, I don't necessarily, the hug to your father for everything he did for you during all those years, it isn't that manifestation that people mean when they say, oh, I love you, Dad. Because I can now say it after years of how you raised me and how I respect you and what you gave to me and how I was able to understand who you are and, and how you are affecting me. No, I love you because I can get something right now from you or I think that's what you want me to hear. And because I want to get that from you, I will mouth those words. <laughs> I love you. And, and That's a crass version of it. But I think that bleeds over into even normal uh, interactions. Say you love me. Say you love your brother. Say you love him. Sometimes I'll see parents who, when their kids are fighting, they'll take them apart and say, okay, you know that was wrong to hit him, Shmuli, right? And Rachi, you know you shouldn't have pulled his hair, right? Okay, now say you love him. Say you love him, right? And again, it's empty. So I, I'm sort of surprised because it, it seems like it, it's one of the most overused, misunderstood, and,
1: and totally meaningless expressions. I love you. I need to react to this like with a bit of an approach. So again, from a Freudian perspective, okay, love is phony. From a Freudian perspective, we are all interested in making ourselves feel good. And we use other people as a way of helping us feel good. Basically, we, we, we exploit them. That, that's simple in Freudian theory. So in fact, um, Freud used to refer to interpersonal relationships as object relations. And he did a dafka to say that your relationship to another person is really the way you relate to an object, a food item or some other item. You're trying to use them. There was a major pushback from many of Freud's students, including his daughter. And they called themselves ego psychologists. And their basic notion was that the need for close interpersonal relationships is a basic drive in human beings. And that's a a major innovation in terms of understanding people that you're not someone who's thrown into the Robinson Crusoe kind of setting where you're going to take twigs and animals and whatever it is and use them for your own sake, but that there's an inherent need for relationships. So basically, according to this ego psychologist, and especially the way it was later expanded by existential psychologists, is that that your life will become unbearable without meaningful relationships. Now, if you want to dissect what meaningful relationship is, it might actually be an oxymoron because it's a given. It's like trying to dissect what is hunger really. It doesn't work. So in other words, those kinds of questions may be moot from a, a epistemological point of view. And um, I find some parallel to that in some of the basic writings, basically, even of the Rambam, who explains that the entire notion of why God created the world is because he had a basic need, if you can use those terms, to do good unto others. And again, that's an absolute. And I I find that many people, if you ask them to describe their love relationships, it's that they get a tremendous charge of doing something nice or good for someone they're, quote, or unquote, in love with. I think in my own work, I have found some people, there are some really interesting people in Brigham Young University, Christians, okay? And they came up with a translation of what we call the need for interpersonal relationships among people to their perspective that people have a need for an interpersonal relationship, so to speak, with God, that you have that implanted within you as well, which almost sounds like the converse of the Rambam's notion of God wanting, having an intrinsic need to have to do good to others. Here we say we have an intrinsic relationship. So what I'm just saying is that it's possible that you can't dissect that, just Logically, you can't dissect what that really means, but what it translates into is a basic, however you want to define basic, a basic need to relate to others in a meaningful way where you actually do good things for them, and that makes you feel good just ipso facto, without any kind of explanation at all. And again, I'm basically playing footsie, saying you can't analyze that any further. And first of all, I think the Rambam is happy that you're invoking his name.
0: I don't think you're invoking him correctly, though, because I think you're dealing with another Moshe, Moshe Chaim Mutzato. Does the Rambam say that the Tachos of the world is that God
1: wants to do good? I think that's really more the Kabbalistic approach. I remember it more in terms of a question that he asked, why does God makes you, make you go go through all the motions of doing something good and then rewarding you? Why doesn't he just give you good stuff.
0: I think the Ram says he wants to make mitzvahs make us better people because it allows us to be closer to him and and become more philosophically astute. Okay,
1: look, I I may be be messing up. It's
0: definitely part of what's considered Jewish hashkafa or thought uh, and and it's quoted uh, obviously Moshe Chaim Mutzato, author of M'sosih Sharm and other Kabbalistic works besides the ethical works, and the Chafetz Chaim and many, many of his works basically paraphrases this so it has become a lot in, in many ways the standard answer as to what god wants from us god wants to do good god wants to be to give he wants to give over his greatness he wants to give over himself he wants to be mashpia as we say in hebrew so you're right that that is i wouldn't call it a trope but it's part of what most in the in the religious jewish world see as okay what is it that that God wants. So my point though is, is that it doesn't always go that extra mile. In other words, yes, I feel good giving to you. In fact, Shamshnafal Hirsch, maybe even more influential than the Rambam today, uh, writes that the word Ahava, the the Hebrew word for love, is connected to the Aramaic word Yahav, which is the term for giving. Yahav is to give, in Aramaic, as you know, Yavin and leh So Ava is based on giving, that you feel that you've done something for someone else, and that is the sense of of what love almost, it doesn't even have to necessarily reverberate back. If I'm a complete giver, I love you, according to Hirsch. If I give everything for you, if I live for your sake, if I do everything to help promote your well-being and your, your, your education, I love my children. It doesn't necessarily have to Uh, reverberate in some sort of feeling because it's clearly the engine that is causing you to give everything for someone else. You are a lover, whether you like it or not. (laughs) That is Hirsch taking this. But what I'm saying is, and again, you're sort of dancing around it and I'm I'm okay with that, is that there are people who don't give at all and just take and say, I'm a lover (laughs) and I love myself, right? Basically, they're not giving anything. They are trying to live their lives in a way like, oh, as, as we talk about, the Lothario who hits on the girl on, on Valentine's Day. And then she doesn't see him for the next couple of weeks. Well, he got his Valentine's Day. Then it was a day of love. E- even the, the the euphemism, and I'll be crass about it, the euphemism of making love, right? Making love. And again, I, I tell you, I, you see, Sam, I'm an old movie buff. I grew up in a house where I spoke Yiddish to my father my grandmother, but then I watched old movies with my mother, right? So I would hear this term, making love. I didn't know what it meant exactly, right? Making love, right? And, and of course, uh, I would hear in these the screwball comedies, I caught him making love to her. What does that mean, making love, right? <laughs> making, right? what does that mean? So my mother said to me, oh, it means that they were kissing each other. Oh, he was saying nice things to her. That's making love. When I realized that making love was Hollywood speak, for sex, as it is still today, I'm wondering, making love? That's making love. Why is that called making love? (laughs) So to me, it sort of really, again, shows the artificiality of of this whole
1: concept. You're being straight either Marxist or Freudian. That's basically just a cover-up word for saying, let me get what I can, and then if you get what you can, too, we can keep this going. So it, it really it's almost like a
0: sign i would say if somebody would be a, a cynic or a sociologist or a Haredi, this is a sign of decadence in the israeli american society that they have this love day this love day which is which they can they can dress it up as much as they want but it's really you know it, it it it's it's vile in the fact that it's very self-serving and it doesn't necessarily res, uh, how often does it result in Oh, I didn't know you loved me. Oh, you really care for me? I mean, that's the Hollywood version of it where, oh, I finally got the guts on Valentine's Day to be able to tell you that what, what my crush on you was. And somehow the beautiful girl sees the nerd and says, oh, wow, I guess you do. Oh, you you know, you're pretty cute without your glasses. Oh, you know what? You're OK. And all of a sudden <laughs> that could become a real loving relationship that we could quote-unquote, that ends with stability and wonderful children.
1: Right. You basically see it as perhaps an extra stimulus that's put in there to get you out of the, the doldrums of meaningless relationships that could spark you onto something that's meaningful if you allow for the fact that there is something meaningful in the portfolio to begin with. So you have to start with the question, is all this funny? Is there ever any true love in any relationship? Or is it all utilitarian? And if you say that there is something, then you could see the notions of the artificial props like Valentine's Day or rituals as a way of helping you surmount the doldrums and get into something meaningful. So really you have to start with the first question, are you an ultimate cynic? And if you're an ultimate cynic, you put all this down to claptrap. If you believe that there is something called a true uh, interpersonal meaningful relationship, then the question is, can you bridge the gap and go from just self-serving practicalities to something meaningful? And I see that very parallel in religion as well, as do the uh, my friends in Utah. I see the same issue there. Can you get out of just telling God, you know, your Christmas list? I want this, and I want this, and I want that, and I won't be bad because I don't want you to smite me to saying I really relate to you. I can just say parenthetically, I tried using some, they have some very nice relationship scales out of Brigham Young. They relate to relationships to God, and they have norms for what the general Christian rates on. And I have to tell you that I've tried using it on the religious and Haredi populations in Israel with dismal results. You know, if I get one or two points on a scale of 50, I'm lucky. I mean, somebody who doubts every day and learns every day, and the question is, Do you feel you have a relationship with God? And they look at you like you're crazy. Relationship with God? Mazen. The Mormons are, in many ways, a stellar representation
0: of how a society can be large, uh, spread out in a way, although they're pretty much like in Utah and in Idaho. But they have a a, a strong moral basis. They feel involved in the world.
1: Um, They feel that they dedicate themselves and they also feel like they relate to God in as way as many spousal couples feel they relate to each other.
0: And obviously, if you think about, you know, without getting into all the details of a Mormon, young Mormon's life, we know that the part of what they do is uh, instead of taking a gap year to enjoy Ben Yehuda or whatever it is in Eretz Israel, or enjoy Rav Asher or whatever it is the alumnus they're going to get in Yeshiva, what they do is they go on a mission. And their mission is to go to some, like a Chabatzker, they go out to some place to spread the word of God. They, they live in a very Spartan-like existence. And uh, it, it's very crucial for what they consider their maturity and the rest of their lives, where at the, you know, almost at the point where you would expect them to be cruising on Valentine's Day, what they're doing is going off to some a village, remote village somewhere, to spread the word of uh, Joseph Smith which is again it's expected and understood that every mormon boy and girl will do something like that and it's a in a way it's 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 quite admirable because it's not just a small percentage that are willing to do that so look how seamless i'm sure there are a lot of mormons who have, uh, have been renegades from the church but i think their level of attrition is less than what we have and other Christian cultures. So, you know, it's definitely something, I think, to be studied, and I'm sure you you, you can find it fascinating. I remember, Sam, that I once bought a sefer called Cheshpen Efesh, which had the haskam of the great Bali Muser, and it was a book that was based on, actually, Benjamin Franklin's outline for how one should measure every moment of their day and realize the midos, the, the character traits he had to work on, and make a checklist of how they were doing as far as those traits go. And every day they would review vis-a-vis the uh, the calendar or diary they would take. And and it was actually very instructive. And I found, as I got older, that there were many like myself who had started to actually walk the path that the author of the book, Cheshbon Anefesh told us would be helpful for us. And that was a path of living your life and every night seeing Hmm. Making a check where you spoke Lushon Hara, uh, making a, a star where you perhaps did something positive and look at it every night and, and make. This was what the book was about. Now, it was a book that, that I ended up using and the cover came off. But it was it was something that I really was invested into in the back of that sefer. And people can find it, of course, on Hebrew books. You will find a Dvar Torah from the author. And, and it's interesting because it's so out of whack with the rest of the book. In that Dvar Torah, he talks about the bracha that is made by generally the officiant at a Jewish wedding, that that blessing about marriage, that right, that there is a way that God has given us a way to have marriage in the proper time through Chup and Kedushin, Isn't really a a blessing, he says, that it's made on the mitzvah of getting married. It's a bracha of the pleasure that marriage, the marriage bed specifically, gives to the person. And since throughout the person's life, he will be engaged in cohabitation with his partner, this bracha that's made at the wedding is the birchas hanenin, is the bracha of pleasure for the rest of their life. This was a, an idea that, again, it, it sounds like it's almost like Alistair Crowley or shopside Tzmi or Nathan Agassi would, would say it, but it was said by a very standard Orthodox Muser thinker. So when I read this, of course, I was only single at the time. I didn't really understand it completely, but I, I think after my married life, I think I understand what this means. I think what this means is is that it isn't just that I was able to get the release of sexual activity, but rather the intense pleasure that is a byproduct of that, the pleasure from both partners, especially of the, of the uh, not just the man, especially the woman's, this sense of, of an endorphin's release to the point that it's almost, let me say this clearly, it's almost like going into a different state of being. It's like time changes. You feel things different. Things that are said are different. It's like a drug. The drug of that elevated, beyond feeling that is developed, which which is released through the act of the sexual act. That's what this bracha is really about. And that intensity, which is greater than love, it's not love. Some people would call it animalistic, or you might say it's beyond human. Because what happens there that is is, is almost different than your normal life where you're just buttoning up your shirt or combing your hair or getting that meeting, it is in a way a feeling of pleasure, closeness, satisfaction of being. And I think that might be, Sam, what we say, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that sense of love. It's inexact because love could be hirsch, giving, no, I'm looking for that place. I want to take you to that place. I want to take, the, the male wants to take his partner to that place. He wants to join, if he can, in that place. And I'm wondering, and in a true way, is it possible that the monks and the saints and the mystics, like Lutzato and others, were able, as part of their trance state, as part of what allowed them to truly and you might think they were just delusional but part of what was pushing them the engine was they were able to generate that as well thinking about god and it came through the study of 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 the words of the torah the mystical undergirding of what the torah meant it took them to sort of similar places i don't mean to say that they were you know getting themselves sexually excited but What the sexual excitement leads to, which is that release of incredible endorphins in the mind to the point that it's in a different state, that is what we could experience
1: in the ultimate love relationship with God. If I could just translate that into into psychoanalytic problems, which I'm quite familiar with, what you're saying, at least what I'm hearing for this using my Freudian ears, is that there is a certain amount of energy which is usually comes in a sexual package that can be sublimated and then used for the intensity of a relationship with another person or even with God. But it's the same energy, so to speak. That's how I would translate it, which makes it a little bit less base. I actually don't believe it's base, Sam. I actually believe. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I, it, it it sounds based to people saying, "Hey, you're davening and thinking of orgasm." I, I I'm simple. Really, what we're saying is that there's a certain amount of energy that's devoted that can easily be shifted. And we find that psychiatrically the whole time. You have energy that's devoted to something X and all of a sudden it's expressed in Y. Even in anger, in antisocial activities, but it's the same energy that's driving you. <laughs> well, the
0: Mizritcher Magid says something similar, which I know you're familiar with, when he talks about shuckling during davening. When he talks about the two stages of where tefillah are. And I think we've talked about it on this show before, about shuckling and then the non shuckling part. And that there's the shuckling is the is somehow the foreplay that leads to the incredible sense of you're actually bonded and, 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 and glorying in, in with God. So again, I I don't I know that that in fact, quoting again this Sefer or the Raivad. Uh, who was a mystic and a halachas at the same time, this is holy. The, the zivug is holy. And it's not just holy because it utilitarianly you create progeny, and this is what God wants, but it's actually, in a way, imitatio dei. day. It's like the moment of creation. It's, it's the same way we could say the holiest thing God could do is extend himself, as you said before, quoting Rambam slash Ramchal, to give to something
1: else. Rabbi, if you were a Catholic, you'd be excommunicated. <laughs> I'm serious, no, because the Catholic notion is that that's a, the corporal part of um, human existence is something that should be eradicated or at least subjugated to something more lofty. And here you're talking about what's considered by many to be intrinsic Jewish theology, that the, uh, the, the corporal forces, et cetera, are the part... Of your overall existence, even in terms of the highest uh, aspects. Even to the going back to the Platonic idea that what you think
0: about during this activity can somehow influence the type of soul, the type of being that is the byproduct, really shows mm-hmm. you that you're tapping in at that moment with is sort of like at God's
1: well of souls. Yeah, that—that's the theory of animism, basically. That predates all of this, assuming that there is a spiritual force which um, can be created. Well, again, if if you if you, if you
0: take what the provincial mystics, as Gershon Shalom has pointed out, uh, you know, you take their attitude, then this physicality that we extol with the blessing is really, in a way, something that not only hints at it's actually a residue or part of God's power to love us. In other words, when we engage in this act, that tuba of, and Valentine's Day, and everything was meant, right? That is a successful tuba of, a successful Valentine's Day ends this way. In a way, you are involved in a metatio dei from a mystical perspective. And if you don't know what that is, then you're missing something, right? And you can tap into that. Uh, You know, we are told Again, I hate, I don't want to go all mystic on you, but we're told that, you know, Abraham and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, spent years childless. But the Zohar says they were quite an active couple. Right? Even though they knew they couldn't have children, Abraham was bedding Sarah consistently. And the Zohar says because those acts were spiritual, because they, in a way, generated the, the spiritual Sort of like ectoplasmic material that eventually became all the converts that came into Judaism. So again, he, again, unless you want to be Gratz or someone else and say the Zohar is an erotic work dressed up in Kabbalah language, I think there's something very sublime here to say that the father of our nation, the one who our ultimate hero was, someone who who recognized the the importance. He knew he couldn't have kids until there was a miracle, but he realized that this action and this involvement was something that was crucial not only to his own service of God, but for the continued history of a humanity that could actually do good things and change the world and love God as well. So <laughs> I, look, I, I know you're, you're trying, people who aren't seeing the video can't see you stifling your... <laughs> your visage in order not to sort of like, you know, to, to laugh. But again, I, I again this is standing in two worlds. So I, I I do believe that it's important to give love its due, so to speak. So anyway, we, we we do hope that as you're standing here, I guess when when this drops right, you know two weeks before uh Rosh Hashanah, hopefully this brings out not the baser parts of your feelings, but actually could somehow elevate your way to at least be not only you just to daven as you say better and to think about god more but in your interpersonal relationships
1: and i would add in your relationship with god let's not forget
0: that of course of course all right take care sam we'll see you take care thanks for joining us for another episode from the yeshiva of newark at idt podcast be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode